You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to begin a journey through the book of Judges, but I'm going to give you some guides. If you've got that blue ESV Bible, we're going to walk through this these texts of scripture to see where it is that we land in the book of Judges beginning in. So, so mark a spot in the, the first page of the book of Judges, but then you'll also, we're going to be running through these. If, if you want to begin to mark the spot, I'll bring this back up as we work our way through, or I'll leave it up as we walk through here. I want you to, I didn't put the text of scripture on the slides today, and it's because I want you to be in a Bible, whether it's by a Google smartphone app, or you name it, tablet, or, uh, or, or, or the, the paperback Bible in your in your hands right now, or another Bible that you might have brought. I want you to walk through this together. I, want, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to walk through God's word with us. And so I want to do so, leaning up to and introducing today, and hopefully giving you an overview of the book of Judges, and why it is that we're here, and what it has to do with us even today. And so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, There's only a couple of chapters in the Bible where people are without sin, and that's the first couple of chapters, but they rebel against God, and a trajectory is set for the rest of the entirety of the Bible that God will do something. And the first, we call it the proto-evangelion, that is the proto-gospel, the preview to the gospel is in a curse to the enemy of God's people, the serpent and deceptive lying snake. And so beginning in chapter 3, I'm going to read to you this curse that is given to the serpent, beginning in verse 14. We'll read verses 14, 15, and then we will immediately jump into Genesis 49. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So join me now in Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read verse 10. God anoints a man by the name of Abraham and says that he's going to bless the world through this man and his offspring, very similar to Genesis chapter 3. And then there are some promises of this lineage of Abraham. You'll see one in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 49. The scepter, that is the scepter of the king, the ruling scepter of the king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now skip forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the end of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God's people have been delivered from bondage in Egypt. But beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord promises a fulfillment and it will take place in a particular location, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one, with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall be careful. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now skip to Joshua, Joshua chapter 23, page 113 on the blue Bible. I want to read verse, beginning in verse 11 of Joshua chapter 23. After Moses has led them out and the fulfillment of this promise has happened, Joshua leads them in to take over this promised land where God's promise to redeem his people will take place. Beginning in verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now join me all the way now in the book we'll spend the next couple of months, Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this? You have done. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. I want you to begin to think about yourself like the people are presented to us in the book of Judges. And to happily ask the question, why is this book even here? Why is this book even here? Because up to this point, as I just skimmed over God's promise that started to Eve, I love that he said, he says, to your offspring, literally, literally the word, and this is important, uh, the word he says to the, the serpent about Eve and, and to, to, to the serpent and to Eve is that she will have a seed. Now that's important because typically we don't speak of women and their offspring in terms of seed. Now if that doesn't, if you don't understand that, I want to encourage you to talk to your parents, okay? 
um, and wait a couple weeks, ask your gospel community leader, what's that all about? And they would love to explain that, the nuance of that. But, but you don't talk about women's offspring that way, and yet there's something ominous. It says that there will be a seed that comes from this Eve, and then it says something even more amazing. He will come, and he will crush the head of this serpent. He will defeat this serpent. And he says, as sure as you live, this will happen. And so then he promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, look, I'm going to raise up even amongst your generation someone who will deliver you and save you. And then later, as we saw in chapter 49, in this lineage of this chosen people, there will be a kingship. There will be a throne and kingdom that will never disappear. And, and on this throne your, uh, of your lineage, there will be an offspring that will sit on it forever and ever. And everyone will bow down and worship this king. And as this promise comes to pass, when it seems like all hope is lost, they're in slavery in Egypt, they're set free miraculously, and they get everything they've wanted. They get a new place, and, and Joshua tells us the story of Joshua, the, chapter, the books and chapter leading, leading right up to this book that we're in today. He says, look, be strong, be courageous. God's going to fight for you. He's going to take care of everything. And what's the first thing that happens in the introductory words of, of the book of Judges, chapters 1 and 2? They did whatever they wanted. Don't make any covenant with them. Remember, I've made a promise and it will come through your lineage. And any effort on your part to water down, if you will, to dissipate or eradicate this lineage will hinder the salvation of the nations. And yet we saw in the first few verses of chapter 2 in the book of Judges that the first thing they did when they had the chance, just like Eve, just like the descendants of Abraham and just like those separated and saved from Exodus or in, in the Exodus from Egypt, first opportunity they got, they what? Disobeyed the Lord. They disobeyed the Lord. And so Judges is this gap. Judges and Ruth, that is, is a gap between Joshua, the conquest of this new promised land, and the chaos that ensues until a king is put over. And so the summary, I would say, of this entire book can be found in the last chapter of Judges, the last verse. It's the climax of the book. And so if you join me there, Judges chapter 21, the very last verse, verse 25. And we'll be coming back to this every single week for the next several months. This, this is where this story is going. This, this story of leaders that are called Judges Finally, at this climax in chapter 21, verse 25, the end of the book leads, leaves us with this emphatic statement, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whatever they thought was right, that's what they did. And so the book of Judges is a story of what happens to God's people apart from godly leadership. When there is no godly person to lead God's people, what do they do? They do whatever they want. Whatever they want. However they want. And so in some real sense, you would say, why is this book in here? And you, you'll ask this multiple times. We're about to see some really nitty-gritty stories because notice where this book is headed. This book doesn't end with, and then things got better, right? Literally gets worse and worse and worse. And so every single Sunday, I will invite you into a despair and sorrow over sin. I will intentionally invite you every single Sunday into a sorrow over sin. And why would I do such a thing? Why would I do such a thing? Well, on one hand, this kind of describes us, doesn't it? Doesn't this describe people and the world in general? Apart from obeying God's own direction, what do people do? Whatever they want. Whatever they want. However they want. Because after all, if there is no God and he has no plan or purpose for good, then why would you? Why not do everything you want? But this is the story of us. In the end, we do whatever we want apart from God's revelation. 
So I want to invite you into a godly sorrow over sin. Because this is kind of us. Judges is a gap between Joshua and Samuel. That is, that when Samuel takes over, one of the last of the judges to anoint the king, that is Saul, in the end, people do what is right in their own eyes, and it brings about tons of suffering. It brings about nothing but suffering. And yet, don't miss this, God uses all of that chaos for his glory. Right, don't you? And Paul tells the New Testament churches this, in effect, that we are ultimately clay, earthen, cheap vessels that are flawed. Why? Why, is, why are we so flawed? So that ultimately the glory in all of the world would not go to us, but it would go to what's in those vessels, namely to God. Now, notice, in terms of books of the Bible that pastors like to preach, this is at the bottom of the list. It's at the bottom of the list. And we just finished probably at the top of the list the Gospel of John. So it seems fair. Here we go. Most Christians don't know what to do with this. But I'm going to show you, hopefully, in the life of our church, if you've been around here a while, a few years ago we did this already, um, and we, we went through one of those other obscure books, the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And if you were there, if you were there with us a couple years ago, you're like, oh, that was awesome. And if you weren't, you're probably, I, I bet money, you're probably like, what's that book about? Because it's obscure. No one likes it. And most Christians, instead of dealing with it, they just ignore it. But I want you to see why we do this. We don't just ignore the stuff that's difficult to understand. Instead, we face it head on. Because at the end of the book of Joshua, the story turns, and you can see this if you want to in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. This is verse 1 of chapter 1 in Judges. Who shall go up first? Did you catch that picture of leadership? For us against the Canaanites to fight against them. And so the very first question in the book of Judges is, hey, who's in charge now? And for the next 21 chapters, it's like, no one, really. And the people do whatever they want. And God sends people to judge. Now, we have to spend a little bit of time, and we'll do this in the weeks to come, but that word judge isn't necessarily a helpful word for us. That is, that it's, a, it's the title of most of the first books of the Bible is just the first word of that book, but that isn't the case here. Instead, it's a, it's a book from the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, to say these were judges, and it comes right from chapter 2, so go back there with me. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. Okay, so there. So we, th this is what the story of judges is going to be about. There's going to be, God's going to send judges. Now, now here's the problem. By the time it went through Latin and then uh, in Western society, what we think of as a judge is a little bit different. And so we would have thought, we think of judges as a person who has jurisdiction over one nation, right? And so the judges uh, help enforce the laws of this land. They help solve and mediate disputes over the law amongst people, right? So like, so in, in some sense, if, if, you, if you break a law in another country, you don't always, except under certain circumstances, you don't appeal to a judge that's in an American, you know, whether it's city, whether it's county, state, or federal. You don't appear, and those courthouses usually get what's called extradited. You get sent to the country where you broke the law. And, and so that's how we see it. And so like, when I was young, it was Judge Wapner, right? And there's Judge Judy, and there's all sorts of... One day, one day I'm going I'm to take a day off just to watch daytime TV and catch whatever new judge there is now. Because I know there's a couple of them. There's a guy in Providence, Rhode Island, right? And so they, they solve disputes here. But notice, the Old Testament speaks about judges with respect to how God deals with his people and the nations. And so the picture of judge here, how, how, how the leader in this particular case deals with God's people isn't just to settle disputes between these people. It's to actually help them understand and lead them through how they're to interact with the nations. Look at this. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges. What did they do? Who, and catch this word, saved them. They saved them out of the hand of who? Those who plundered them. Now, of course, verse, 20, verse 17, you get a picture of the cycle. What they do in response to that? They did not listen to their judges here we go. This is the PG-13 slash rated R nature of judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They sold themselves off. 
But look what God sends these leaders to do. It's to do what? Deliver and save them. They're deliverers. Now notice, uh, the authority to rule, lead, and deliver, in this case, to judge, is from God. We might better call this the word, the, the, the word judges here just because, we, again, we have so much Western civilization built in how we understand this. It'd be better to think of the word leader, the word deliverer, savior, or even hero. The problem is, and we'll see this because it gets worse and worse because no one listens to them. Did you catch that? Right after that. They're going to save them. I'm going I'm to send someone to save them, and they're going to be like, nah. We'd rather sell ourselves off. Did you get Whoring off to the highest bidder. And so every time we use the word hero or savior or leader, there's a sense in which you have to put it in like scare quotes, right? Like here comes the next hero. There's a reason for that. Because that's what we do. And so these judges ultimately represent, in broken, fallen ways, certainly, the authority that comes from God. Here's what this means. The purpose of the appointment of judges slash deliverers is not judicial but soteriological. I don't care that you remember that word, but I'm going to tell you why it's important. So the word soter is the word savior, which comes up later in this thing called the Bible. It's kind of important. It's what the Romans called Caesar. He was the soter, the savior of his people, literally the deliverer. So it's important that we see that judges ultimately aren't, aren't judicial kinds of characters, but they're saviors, and they point to something later in this book called the Bible. And so they do something, they deliver. That is, godly leaders are instruments of deliverance from their enemies, not simply the settlement of internal disputes. Now, this is important because the word deliverer, like just think how we use this word, like a, maybe think a delivery boy, like a, like a I don't know, like the, maybe your UPS or mailman. What do they do? They take something from one place and they get it to the next, right? That's what a deliverer does, gets it something to the next place. In fact, that's what we would say a leader is. Someone who takes people from one place to the next. And so God sends these people ultimately to represent by his authority what it is that he means to do for his people. Namely, save them. Deliver them. Get them out of where they are. Get them to the next best place. Here's what this means about the book of Judges and everywhere else in the Bible. This is about God. This is about God. This book and every book in the Bible, this anthology of revelation of God is about him. That means that this isn't primarily about you. You see, there's, there's kind of, the Bible talks about a general revelation that everyone can begin to see the greatness of God, even if they have never heard the name of Jesus. They, they know that there is something and they reject it and rebel against it, Roman one, Romans 1 tells us. But then there's a special revelation that we believe that God has revealed himself as he's revealed himself in Scripture, and the fullest extent of his revelation is the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on behalf of his people. That's the revelation of God's character and nature. But in his revelation of his greatness to his people, the response, the proper response, is a feeling of smallness. We're invited, even in this book, in that despair of life, to a humility. Here's the way I would put it. It's especially pertinent for this week. No one stands next to a massive mountain and thinks big thoughts of themselves. No one goes to the ocean, especially not in the last week, and faces the ocean and faces a hurricane and thinks highly of themselves. What do they do? They evacuate. And what happens when they don't? We're getting a chance to to pray for and and care for people who who have lost loved ones because of the greatness of an ocean and a storm. That's the kind of general revelation that there is something bigger. And if you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, here's what I would say. What do you do with that? What do you do with your smallness? Here's something interesting I'll tell you. Remember those things I told you about, like, I don't know, mountains and oceans? Do you know where we really like to vacation the most? Have you thought about that? The place we like to rest. The place we find the deepest kind of rest. 
is in the places that make us feel the smallest. You thought of that? That's why when you go to Disneyland, like you're not, you don't, you don't, re- you're like it's not a vacation that you re- like feel good about. You come back, everyone, yeah, because that was it. Like, oh, the, what was the greatness? It was our entertainment. It was worshiping our children and their whims for, the, for a couple days, right? Well, okay, great. But real rest, the Bible even teaches us this, is when we realize how small we are and how big and grand and great the Lord God, our creator, is. That's where we find rest. And so what I encourage you every time we start a, a, a book of the Bible as we study it, I want you to begin to implore of this book to understand the character and nature of God. Now resist the temptation in a very consumeristic, like very individual, individualistic culture to take the Bible and treat it like your yearbook. You know what I'm talking about? What's the first thing when you're in school? Now, this won't apply to maybe some of you who are homeschooled. I apologize. Ask some other people around you. The first thing you look for when you get your, like, your elementary or middle school or high school yearbook. What's the first thing? You know, you know as well as I do, this book is not about you. This book is about the year in the life of this school. But even though you know that, what's the first thing you go thumbing through the yearbook to find? You. Well, there I am there. There I am there. Woo. And so in the same way that no one peers into the face of a hurricane and thinks big thoughts of themselves, no one ought to peer into this scripture, as it were, the revelation of God's greatness and think highly of themselves. But instead to realize, apart from God and his revelation, I do whatever I want, and it always leads to destruction. This means that one of my tasks in this book and every single Sunday is to give you what I would call a biblical worldview. That is a perspective on the world based on how God reveals himself in Scripture. Namely, that we are made in the image of God, we're created and we reflect and image his character, and yet we're fallen, sinful, and subject to the consequences of sin. And you see this in the book of Judges very clearly. On one hand, we sort of image God, but every opportunity we get we take that power and we destroy with it. By the, and some of the most valuable things we have, the most powerful things we have, we're given and, and we have power to do great things with them and we use them to destroy. So like we, we, we crack the atom in the 20th century, right? Woo! Harness the power of the atom. What did we do with it? What problems did we solve with it? We turned it into a weapon that the world has never seen before. And so with great power, right? You see, like, we're like we, we reflect God and the power that he's given to us. But what do we want to do with it? Let's kill someone with it. Let's destroy. Here's the most profound one. Human sexuality. Literally, the power to bring life. But when harnessed by evil, there is no greater influence for human slavery, trafficking, and subjugation and objectification other than that. And this power to literally bring life, the image is God's creative nature, what do we do? We use it to destroy. And we're meant to wrestle with that. We're meant to look that dead in the eye, not avoid it, but go like, what must be done? What do we do with the fact that we're somehow imaging God, we're entrusted with these things, and yet every time we get a chance to exercise that God-given authority, what do we do with it? Well, the whole historical narratives in the Old Testament are meant to set the stage for, promise and st- for the promise and the story of the one. That's what they're meant to do. The way I describe this in the Old Testament, I call them gospel seeds, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that that God has come to be with us and for us, take our place and die on our behalf and give us all the blessings of the adoption of God our Father and resurrected victorious to destroy our enemy, right? That good news in full bloom in the New Testament is in seed form in the Old Testament. Little seeds are planted here. The little seeds, the way I talk about it, because I can't talk about anything without giving you either a sports analogy or a food analogy, I speak of this in the Old Testament as appetizers. 
Now that's important because like if you go to a Mexican food restaurant, the appetizer is chips and salsa. If you go to like Texas Roadhouse or Olive Garden, they give you a bunch of bread. Either way, this is the appetizer at those places is not any good for this analogy because they just give you lots of gluten and sugar and bread, right? And what do you do with that appetizer? Do you use it to prepare to enjoy the great meal and entree that's on its way? Absolutely not. You, you, and you gorge, like you go after as much as possible, and I eat like four baskets of chips, and then by the time the meal gets there, I'm not even hungry anymore. But the true meaning of an hors d'oeuvre or an appetizer is to be so succulent, so savory, and yet so insufficient It's meant to whet your appetite and you go, this is good. Boy, I want more. This is good, but it's not enough. I sure hope there's something better. And the chef outside, right, outside of the room in the the kitchen is like, yep, here I go. And that's what the Old Testament is. We're meant to anticipate what God is doing. We're meant to, in seed form, see how Jesus is coming on the scene. And so what do we just see as, we, as, I, as I set the stage for this? How do we respond? How did, how did that narrative I walked you through, just even the first few books of the Bible, how did it come at us? People's response to God's blessing is always sinful disobedience. Every single time. Anytime God blesses us, the response is disobedience. And we often think to ourselves, well, maybe if I had it that way, or maybe I was like them, or we're like, maybe if I lived in biblical times and I saw amazing miracles, it'd be different. And we find out that's just not true because our broken, sinful, and fallen nature causes us to rebel against God every single time he blesses us. The very first story of the Bible. Adam and Eve, perfect. Everything is in perfect order. And what they do? They said, I want to be, be greater than what God is. I don't want to be dependent creature. I want to be like God. And so this is the case. That means that we ought to be very grateful for God's blessing. But at the same time, as Martin Luther says, and I try to repeat, it started in many ways the Protestant Reformation. The posture of a Christian, the posture of a Christian is a perpetual posture of repentance. We never stop repenting. Because we know the first thing that happens when we experience blessing is that we immediately congratulate ourselves. And we immediately take that power and we use it to destroy rather than to build up. Now this is important for the life of our church. I hope that I regularly lead us into a humility of God's mercy over us. There's this blessing God's given us. And here's, here's the hard part right now in the life of our church. I shared with this, this with some of you as we talked about gospel communities last week. Statistically, this church is going to be a little bit different than the, most of the churches you've ever seen and that we're experiencing healthy discipleship growth and we'll fight and die for that. And as a result, here's the, here's the bizarre thing. God's blessing it. Like even as I look out, I look and I see answers to specific prayers that God is delivering you. For some of you, you're in, the, you're, in the, you're in the muck, man. He's exposing the mess that you're in. But so many of you have been delivered, and you have such an amazing story of God's grace. And I, it's a, I get to see it every single week. And, it, and by God's grace, it's, just, it's bigger. And there's like just more of what God's doing. But don't miss what that means. In light of Scripture, this is where we're the most susceptible to congratulate ourselves. This is where we're the most susceptible to give the glory and credit for that to someone or something else. And to hope in lesser things rather than to rejoice in glory in the greatest thing. And rest beside this mountain that is God. And so that means our posture every single week. Every single, like I know every week you come back and he's like, Jonathan's going to be really proud of me this week and he's going to tell me I got it all figured out and it's going to be awesome. And it's like, no, no. But he's awesome, and he's got it, and you can trust him. And I want to invite you into a deep despair, a deep sorrow, if you are trusting in anything less than God. Because you see, there is a standard of good and bad, a standard of right, and it is in God's eyes. Now this phrase is repeated in the book of Judges. But remember the last one I just read, the very last chapter, people do whatever's right in their own eyes. Turn a, f- a few pages to chapter 6. The story of Gideon, a 
quote-unquote hero, right? But verse 1 of chapter 6 says what? The people of Israel did what was evil in whose eyes? In the sight of the Lord. There is a right. There is a good. But it is in God's hands alone. Therefore, our natural response to blessing of disobedience is always an affront to God's perfect character. It is always a defiance of his holiness. Here's what's amazing in this story, right? Here's what's amazing in this bridge story from people wandering, even in the midst of this chaos and this mess. God's response to disobedience is loving discipline. It's loving discipline. I talk about this in Romans chapter 1, that actually God's wrath is revealed to people, not by, not by just letting them do what they, or excuse me, not, not by calling them back, but it's by letting them do whatever they want. And I share this all the time. Like, I love my daughters, but if one of them was running out into the street, you can guarantee, like, I'm going to tackle that little girl. She'll hate it. I may break her bone, but I would rather inflict that temporary harm on her to keep her from death. But wrath real wrath is if my daughter is going to run out into traffic, a dangerous place, and I say, she's got to learn somehow. She reaches for the hot stove or reaches for the fire, and I go, well, she's going to learn somehow. Real wrath is to turn someone over to the consequences of their decision. Love is to help prevent them from feeling. Love is to hinder them and, and to corral them. Wrath is to allow them to just feel the effects of it. And so something happens here. God allows them to feel the effects of it, and he never leaves them. He always allows that suffering to be an act of discipline. God's people always experience this. And in trying and difficult circumstances, we respond in a, a, a specific way. God's people respond to trying circumstances with repentance. This is a cycle in the book of Judges, but I want you to see it's not special. It is literally God's normal way of dealing with his children. He allows sorrow, and sometimes we even see here he'll author the sorrow to keep from death. And the right and proper response in all circumstances of pain and suffering is repentance. It's not special. And for us, it's a weekly habit, a daily habit. We, re- we regularly lay this down. And so this cycle you'll see in the book of Judges is one of these guys, the people do whatever they want, you caught that, and then God, you just catch that after verse 1 of chapter 6. And then what happened when these people did what was evil in the right eyes of the Lord? And the Lord did what? Gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And God in his mercy is like, okay, fine. Fine. This is going to hurt. This is going to sting a little. But something amazing happens in the regular, and regular, it's like routine and common. It's, it, it's, it's so regular that I know for some of you, you want something really flashy. Like you want me to say, here's what you got to do this week to find happiness and joy. Do this, this, and this, right? And here's, it's not flashy, it's repent. Repent. Confess to the Lord that you've hoped in lesser things. You turn from it, and you trust that he is good enough. And something happens in that not flashy, very routine way that God calls his children back. God delivers every single time. Every time. This is the fun part of this awful story uh, in the book of Judges. This is going to get real repetitious. And you're going to be tempted to get bored with the story. You're going to get tempted. You're going to be tempted to like, oh, they're going to do it again. Ugh. Oh, they rebel again. Ugh. And all I have to ask you is, what would it be like if God the Father saw you that way? And what if your boredom with this repetition of sin and restoration is actually a deep-seated unbelief in God's mercy? His mercy isn't enough for you. You're special. There's got to be some, some grand that comes along for you. And I want to, no, this is, this is God's delight. Never leaves them. He sins in even imperfect ways, but never abandons them. He delivers them every single time. Such that these judges, these leaders that image his authority, they image Christ, but they don't replace him. Every godly leader, deliverer, judge, Images Christ, but does not replace him. It's so important. 
every good and godly leader that you will ever meet. This is a big deal for us as a church. We, we anticipate in the years to come, we want to we wanna honor the New Testament. We want to raise up from our midst what we would call godly, biblically qualified elders, elder pastor bishop, pastors that would lead this church. And, and we want them to image Christ. We want them to lead us, remember, deliver us from one step to the other. And hopefully you would even say that about me as your leader, right? Maybe for some of you, you, you were here and I delivered you to here. And maybe the here was just, you'd never heard the good news of God's grace. And by God's grace, I could, hey, look, God receives you, adopts you, and you don't have to live there. Come over here. Ephesians 5, come out to the lights. Let Christ shine on you. Stop chasing that thing. It will kill you and starve you. Come out here where abundant grace is waiting. And hopefully every good disciple maker, every good leader is like a judge simply delivering, imaging Christ. But they don't replace him. And so we have to resist the temptation to do one of two things. We're living in a trend and like a the kind of a movement in our culture right now of hero deconstruction, right? And so like, and I'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but, but suffice to say, in the beginning of the 20th century, we, we probably fell prey to what we would call hero worship, right? And so the stories we told were like Superman, right? There were the Lone Ranger, right? And, and they were, remember this? Like, and there's, you know, I don't know, I don't know what this will be for you, but like, like your, whatever your favorite hero is, maybe from back in that day, but if you can't list one, like if John Wayne doesn't mean anything to you, right, that those people aren't heroes to you, well then you're, you're, you're prey to when the pendulum is swung in postmodern thought of what we would call hero deconstruction. Literally, the newest Superman, he dies. Are you kidding? Right, and so instead of, instead of like worshiping heroes who have failed us, Right, we gave all these people so much power, and that power was abused, right? Like, Adolf Hitler was a whole bunch of people's hero. Like, he's the guy. He's our deliverer. He will save us, and he will take us to this new promised land. And, and that didn't work out so well. And so our rebellion against that is like, forget that. We're going to deconstruct heroes. And so the most popular and important people in our lives, they're not, they're not like paragons of virtue. They're the opposite. They're paragons of self-expression. And so we have replaced, in our own culture, in the last couple of decades, heroes with, this will hurt, celebrities. People who are, like, so visibly flawed, so visibly flawed that if we just stick a camera around them and call it reality TV, that's, it's going to blow up. If you tell a story about Superman and he's perfect and virtuous, today, it, no good. It has to be a dark night. Get it? We want our heroes to be flawed because we, we realize that the hero that we worship, it's too much, it crushes us. And so we engage in what we would call hero deconstruction. People who express their inner self, right? And, and the people who show their flaws are our heroes. Right? They don't publicly repent of unrighteousness. We praise them because they're no longer slaves to virtue. Don't you love him? He just tells it like it is. He's our hero. Don't you love her? She does what no one tells. She doesn't, she doesn't conform to these, like, these expectations. She does whatever she wants. She just shows her flaws. Every, she, and, and, we, and we worship that. But notice what it has done. There is two false hopes. One is to believe that there is a perfect hero that we can somehow see in this world and be, which crushes us. But on the other hand, we just throw it out and we say there's no such thing as heroes at all. There are no perfect heroes. And we love to destroy celebrities. And don't miss that. Every godly leader images Jesus and points to that perfect hero that is to come. But they're not him. And that frees us from hero worship. But it also frees us from despair. There is a real hero. And in this book, God gives his people temporary deliverance through imperfect judges and deliverers. Back to what I was saying, we want to raise up godly leaders in our church. Men and women who lead other people to Jesus. But don't miss, they're going to fail you. They're going to let you down. 
So therefore, if you have a godly leader, praise God. I mean, you're, you're about to see, like, oh, this, wow, this is amazing. God used some really flawed people. And so if you have a godly leader, praise God for that. Thank God for that. But they're not perfect. They will always let you down. So on one hand, stop being a jerk to people who serve you in leadership. Praise God for them. But on the other hand, stop being a jerk trying to destroy them. But also stop trying to let them be Jesus for you. Whether it's your mom and dad, your boss, your favorite celebrity, your favorite politician. Look, praise God if you have a godly leader, but thank God their, their only job is to be an appetizer for that is the ones to come. Because the people needed what God would ultimately give them, a perfect Savior. A perfect Savior. A perfect Savior. And so we can experience in a broken, fallen world remnants, previews of something that God is doing. I saw this just, a, 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 some of you were with me. I got to watch the new Lion King with some people and my daughters. They wanted to see the new Lion King. I want to say a whole bunch of bad things about that movie, but here's what I'll say. Thank God James Earl Jones was still Mufasa. Other than that, I don't, you know, whatever. It's just hard for a lifelike lion to smile. I don't know why, because they're lions. And at the very end, uh, someone turned to me right after, and they said, so what would you think? And I was just overwhelmed. Because I was like, this is stupid. This, this is not as good. I mean, like, again, I'm idolizing the past. Like, when I, was, when I was little, they knew how to make good movies and cartoons, right? And I was just like, ah, this is dumb. And it just dawned on me. And my, like, disappointment with this movie the Lion King. Someone said, hey, what do you think? I, just, I said, thank God. One day our king is coming. One day our king is coming. And we can endure all this other stuff because ultimately God will not withhold from us the only thing that will save us. And friend, that means that if we hope in any lesser thing, we're denying what God ultimately gives us, which is himself. All the good things that we have are simply pointers to him. And as a result, there's good news for us. Judges, this book, is a story of the mess in which God works. The mess in which God works. That means that for us, in this season and seasons to come, the church isn't meant to be a place where only the morally pure feel comfortable and welcome. You are going to have a hard time. If your religion is upper Midwest moralism, judges is going to jack you up, man. If there always has to be a right and wrong, judges is going to frustrate you, and here's the thing, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to rub it in your face. Because those walls you've built up, those images you've built for yourself that I can be good enough, as they fall apart, I'm going to be right there going like, I got you, I got you. Do you know who is? Do you know who is? Do you know who is? Do you know who's good enough? That means that the church isn't just for people who are self-righteous and highly moral. It's meant to be a place of grace where broken sinners find forgiveness. You'll hear me say this over and over and over again in the book of Judges, right? God will draw straight lines with crooked, broken sticks. He can do whatever he wants, with whomever he wants, however he wants. And that means that the book of Judges calls us to believe something. Christianity is all about repentance. It's all about setting ourselves next to the greatness of God, looking into his majesty and finding the grace that we would never deserve. So here's what I think the application for us is. Please stop being shocked by sin. Please stop being shocked by it. Start being amazed at God's grace. Stop photoshopping sin out of your life. Love that about the book of Judges. There's no other, there is no other religious text in the entire world of any world religion that does this. Every time you tell a story, you make somebody look good. And there's no religious text in which the story is told to where the, like, the writers of the story look like idiots. And that's what's so beautiful about the Bible. The Bible is like, oh, you think people are bad? I've, I've got 66 books for you. Right? Like, it's over and over and over and over again. And yet Christians aren't surprised by it. We're just really grateful that God has already made a combination for it. God is not shocked and surprised in any of these stories. And here's what this means for you. 
God's not shocked or disgusted by you right now. He sees your current spiral of secret sin as another place where he gets to demonstrate just how good he is. We become paragons, not of moral virtue, but of God's grace. Don't miss it. If God's grace isn't sufficient, then none of us stand a chance. And that's what the book of Judges tells us. As long as it's up to us, (laughs) good luck. But praise God that he does not withhold the entree. I love that. That means as servants and leaders, um, I have more in common with the waiter than I do the chef, right? I'm not a good chef for you. I'm I'm just the waiter. Jesus is in the, in the back, saucing up and sautéing some beautiful, delicious thing. And I'm just here in the here. Here it is. Look at it. It's amazing. Isn't it more satisfying than anything you've ever experienced? And so if you're in this room, and right now you're walking through a time of trial and despair here, I want to tell you, like, stop being shocked by that. That's what it's like living in a fallen, broken world. Stop being shocked by it. And repent of hoping in it. And then receive this all-satisfying gift that is Jesus. He is the perfect thing that we need. And God does not withhold these perfect gifts. Instead, he is the father of lights and the author of every good and perfect gift. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have chosen us to be vessels and recipients of your mercy. We recognize that whenever we receive a good gift, our first temptation is to to praise ourselves for it. So I, I pray specifically, Lord, that you would protect us from that, that you would keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves, but instead we would we would see the gift and not think that we are awesome, but we would see the gift and recognize that the giver is awesome. I thank you, especially if there's those in this room and right now they're hoping in lesser things. Father, I, in a way that only you can, would you allow this to be a discipline for them? Allow them to experience the deepest possible despair in those things. Father, not so that they would be crushed, but so that they would find the deepest possible hope in you. There's some in this room and they're just in despair of life because they've hoped in lesser things. They just feel the rejection of people around them. Help them see they've hoped in their own approval. If they're feeling like failures, would, they, would you begin to show them they've hoped in their own achievement? If they feel like everything's chaos, would you show them they've possibly hoped in control and power? Would you allow us to feel the uttermost despair and hoping in these lesser things so that we will come to find out that you have made provision to deliver us to the deepest possible joy? And the places where we once experienced the greatest sorrow are now the places where we celebrate the greatest gift of your grace. Maybe for some of us, we're just in a season of congratulating ourselves and it's leading us into a season of our own sin. And maybe for some of us, we're just feeling the weight of the brokenness of the world. Would you give us comfort today? Give us comfort by faith. You will not abandon us. You rescue us every single time. We thank you that this is true for us by the glorious gift of Jesus Christ. Amen.